is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast. City to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Welcome in and a good Monday morning to you and welcome into the Ryan Hickey Show. It is right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, taking you till 11 a.m. Eastern like we do every Monday and every Thursday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Very excited to have you aboard with us on this busy Monday after the Week 10 in the NFL season. I'll be honest, seeing the NFL schedule the way it was, right, kind of a weird layout, five afternoon games or five early games, uh, six later games because of the Masters, which... Congratulations, Dustin Johnson. A hell of a performance, a hell of a domination down there in Augusta as he wins the green jacket. I honestly, looking at the NFL slate, kind of looking at the college football slate as well, um, with all big games or good games, I should say, canceled. I believe it was five top 25 teams had their games canceled for one reason or another because of COVID-related outbreaks. So it was a light schedule in college football. What I thought to be perceived to be a somewhat light schedule in the NFL based upon the number of games and also, more importantly, kind of the matchups. Nothing popping off the screen too much. Wow. Boy, was I wrong. A lot of drama coming out of college football. A lot of drama coming out of the NFL. We have it all covered right here with you for the next two hours. A lot to get into. Game of the day we'll get into in 15 minutes. Cardinals-Bills. Incredible back and forth by two back and forth performance, I should say, by two young quarterbacks. Josh Allen and the Bills score a touchdown with under 30 seconds left. Kyler Murray and the Cardinals come back down, score a Hail Mary touchdown with just two seconds left as the Cardinals pull that one off. There's one thing that I saw from this game, more from the Bills side than the Cardinals side. It has to do with the quarterback, Josh Allen. To me, can't trust him. If you can't trust Josh Allen, you can't trust the Bills. So we'll get into that in 15 minutes or so. 940, I want to give the Giants a lot of credit here. I'll be honest. I rolled my eyes when I hear living in New York, Giants fans kind of hyping up this game against the Eagles. Giants are coming in at 2-7. and seven. I mean, the Eagles stink too. Obviously, we know the NFC least has been awful this year. But a Giants team that they've beaten Washington, they've beaten nobody else, kind of laughing at the fact that this is a big game. They played really well. I want to give them uh, credit. I want to give Joe Judge credit. We did that at 940 because they get a big win over the Eagles. And now throw themselves right back in to the NFC East conversation. They are in at 3-7. and seven. I'm trying to say it with a straight face. They are in the playoff hunt at 3-7 and seven on the year. Top of the second hour, we do want to get into some college football here. He said a lot of cancellations, um, especially from the SEC side. Four big-time games um, with programs ranked in the top 25 canceled. Uh, in the Big Ten, you had Ohio State, Maryland canceled, which was a, an interesting game. I was excited to see kind of that game. Maryland's offense is looking better. Of late, and obviously we know Ohio State just completely dominating everyone they've played so far. But in the Big Ten, two teams floundering right now. Dumpster fires, a disaster. Penn State, 0-4. Michigan, 1-3. Another embarrassing loss in Michigan National Stage. Penn State continues to follow themselves. Which program is in worse shape, Penn State or Michigan? I have my answer. I'm curious to hear yours. Um, 10-20, as we always do, quick hits. And 10:40. I want to preview tonight's Monday night game: Bears Vikings. 
not sexy, not great. I understand that. There's one aspect, though, coming from the Bears that I want to kind of talk about, and it's why it's a big litmus test, not only for this Bears offense, for Matt Nagy, and maybe, just maybe, could impact his job security going forward. I'll tell you what that is at 1040 to end the show. But as always, as a reminder, we're coming to you live in living color on this Monday morning from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios, where it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners. Check out Big Italy Pizzeria in person in Medford, Joe's Pizzeria in Bayshore, or online anywhere you are in the tri-state area, across the country, on the great West Coast, at BigItalyPizza.com. If you're craving some of that New York pizza, you want a New York slice, BigItalyPizza.com can help you out. So, like I said, the game of the day um, in the NFL yesterday, Cardinals, Bills, two young hotshot quarterbacks going and doing in the desert. An incredible finish. Incredible, incredible finish. I do want to get to that in a little bit, but to me, coming out of yesterday, the bigger story, or maybe a bigger question mark, I should say, has happened in another later game. Um, and that was in Los Angeles, where the Seahawks were taking on the Rams. Seahawks were actually underdogs in a game where I thought, you know, you still have Russell Wilson, you still have this great offense. I know the defense for Seattle has stunk, um, to put it lightly, to put it to put it politely. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where when you have such a great quarterback – you don't really need the defense to do a lot. You know, like one extra stop on defense, two extra stops on defense. Nothing crazy. You're not asking for this total transformation. But just small changes would be enough for the Seahawks to kind of right the ship. They've lost two of the last three heading into yesterday's game against the Rams. Division game. And the Rams, there are still questions, you know, you know how legit are they. They have some decent wins this year. A lot of wins over the NFC East. Um, but there are some question marks. You know, they got embarrassed by the 49ers on national TV a few weeks ago with the 49ers banged up. But coming to this game, I felt pretty good with the Seahawks. I thought this was a, a spot where they can kind of right the ship a little bit, kind of get their footing back, um, and, and kind of reassert themselves as the leaders of the NFC West, as the leaders in the NFC. But didn't go to plan. They lose to the Rams 23-16. Russell Wilson, another up-and-down game. 22-37, 240 yards, zero touchdown passes, two more interceptions, three total turnovers. And now, don't look now. That the Seahawks, one of the few remaining undefeated teams, have now lost three of the last four games. To good teams, mind you. The Cardinals, the Bills, and now yesterday against the Rams. But still, they've lost three of the last four. And now the question is, should there be concern? Should there be pause when it comes to Seattle maybe thinking they're NFC favorites? Maybe should there be some reconsideration that, hey, maybe the Seahawks team isn't as good as we thought. Maybe there's some, some real issues here that, you know what, when it comes down to, when it comes down to the playoffs, hell, when it comes down to the division, there's a three-way tie for first place right now that Seattle might not claim the NFC West. So right now, through Week 10, I'm still not panicking. I still have faith in the Seahawks, but two things are happening right now when you watch Seattle that have to change, have to get adjusted, because if not, this trend's going to continue. The Seahawks will continue to lose. And they could be a quick out in the playoffs. So the two things that I've noticed the past few weeks here watching the Seahawks, especially when they've struggled, that they've really failed to adjust to so far. Number one, teams are starting to attack Russell Wilson in this offense. Teams are blitzing more. They mentioned on the broadcast, um, early in the broadcast, referencing the past games against the Cardinals, past games against the 49ers, and then last week against the Bills. Russell Wilson had a lot of time. In the first few games, defenses were petrified of his passing ability. They try to drop seven in the coverage, drop eight in the coverage. They give him time, but they just don't want to leave anyone open, leave any of those 
great receivers, DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, one-on-one, and have them get burned for a big touchdown. And as you saw, whether it was the Patriots, whether it was the Cowboys, Russ had a ton of success. He carved up defenses, putting up historically insane numbers, running away with the MVP trophy for the first five or six games. But now, really starting with the Cardinals. Teams are starting to blitz more. Teams are starting to attack the Seahawks' offense more and this offensive line specifically more. And guess what? It is working. Yesterday, Russell Wilson was sacked six times and pressured a hell of a lot more than that. And if he wasn't so mobile, if he wasn't so agile and so slippery, that six could have been nine, ten sacks. The Rams had a lot of success yesterday getting after Russell Wilson, pressuring that offensive line, and throwing him off. Past five games, Russell Wilson's been sacked 19 times. 19 times the last five games. Teams are starting to attack the Seahawks, and they have yet to adjust. As a team for the entirety of the season so far, the Seahawks have been sacked, or the Seahawks are allowing, the fifth most sacks in the NFL. And again, this is to a very mobile, very elusive quarterback in Russell Wilson. This is not a statue like Tom Brady back there or Drew Brees back there where they can't really move outside of the pocket. They can't really make someone miss, so if pressure gets home, they're going to go down. This is a guy in Russell Wilson who routinely makes plays out of the pocket, who routinely scrambles, who routinely makes defensive backs, defensive linemen, linebackers miss all the time. And he still is getting sacked the fifth most times in the NFL. So teams are attacking, and it's working so far. This offensive line cannot protect Russell Wilson. Kenny's not just not given time to get the ball out. And so far, the offense hasn't adjusted. So that's the first thing that, you know what, you kind of notice it. I have faith that the Seahawks will fix it, but teams are blitzing more. They're attacking more. Seahawks are slow to respond. The second thing, too, and this is a little bit on Russell Wilson, but also kind of um, a ding on the defense here. Russell Wilson seems like he's trying too hard. Like, it's almost a Carson Wentz effect a little bit on a, a slightly different scale. But Carson Wentz, I feel personally, like a lot of these turnovers he, he is creating, especially interceptions, is because he's trying to do too much. Injuries, struggling, you know, the team overall is struggling. And I feel like sometimes he tries to just will the team to victory, try to do too much, try to make a hero play every single time the ball is snapped and not just live to see another down. Not just throw the ball away, not just take a sack, maybe not just kill the play because it's not there. Try something else. He tries to make the play every single time. And Russell Wilson the past few weeks is doing the same thing. He's trying to make that hero play. He's trying to make that impossible play every single time out. And personally, I feel it's because he realizes in the back of his head, this defense stinks. This defense stinks. If I don't get a touchdown on this drive, if we don't get this third down conversion here, we're going to put these bums back on the field. And guess what? They're going to go right down the field and score a touchdown. So three more turnovers this weekend um, by Russell Wilson against the Rams. Two picks and a fumble. Going back to the last four games, and again, the, uh, the Seahawks have lost three of the last four games. In that four-game stretch, Russell Wilson has seven interceptions, three fumbles lost. Ten turnovers the last four games, three of them losses. Look at that to start the year. The first five games of the season, remember I told you early on, Russell Wilson's looked like an MVP, really running away with the MVP. Forget looking like one. He was the MVP. He had 19 touchdowns, three interceptions the first five games of the season. Everything he touched turned to gold. Even plays that didn't work out. 
a beautiful bomb to DK Metcalf against the Cowboys where DK Metcalf was stripped at the one-yard line. Ball went back in the end zone, turnover on downs, essentially, you know, a touchback for the Cowboys. It was a gorgeous throw right on the money. So things were working out, or things were looking good, I should say, even when they weren't working out result-wise. But now you look, 10 turnovers last four games is not the recipe for success for the Cowboys, uh, for the Seahawks and for Russell Wilson. So I think it is because in the back of his mind, he knows these guys stink. This defense that's behind me is so bad. I can't trust them if we go three and out here, if we don't score a touchdown here, that they can hold up their end of the bargain. So I feel like when you have that mindset of we got to score, 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 you take ill-advised risks. There's a perfect example yesterday in the game. Russell Wilson, near in the red zone, I believe it was about the 25 or 30-yard line of the Rams, marching in, had an opportunity to run 10 yards, 15 yards. There was a lot of green grass in front of him. He escaped the pocket, rolling forward. He could have tucked it and run, got the first down and more. Instead, he's running, and as he's running, he's looking in the end zone, tries to make a miracle on-the-run throw in the corner of the end zone. The drop of dime just before halftime, intercepted, picked off. So you go from scoring at least probably three, maybe even seven if Russell Wilson tucks the ball and runs, gets the first down, continues the drive. He tries on the run, tries to paint or drop a dime in the corner of the end zone. DB reads it, picks it off, turnover, no points. It's plays like that that make you wonder or make you notice he doesn't trust this defense. And in doing so, he is going to try to make every single throw necessary in order to try to win the game. And so far, that's hurting the Seahawks not helping. Four turnovers last week, two picks, two fumbles against the Bills that put Buffalo in great positions to score a lot of points. And they did. 44 of them last week. Defense played a little better. I mean, only 23 points against the Rams. So, you didn't, you know, it's not like the Rams were scoring 40 points. But the defense has yet to earn Russell Wilson's trust, which it shouldn't. But to me, that's why he's playing too hard, or trying too hard, we should say. Not playing too hard, but he's trying too hard, making some ill-advised throws in order to try to win the game. But I'm not, like I said before, I'm not concerned for two reasons. One, I trust Pete Carroll to make adjustments. He's a really good NFL coach. He's not a dummy. He's not a moron. He didn't go to two Super Bowls on accident. Especially as a defensive guy. I trust him to make the small adjustments. And again, we're not talking earth-shattering adjustments here. The Seahawks defense doesn't need to reach 85-level Bears defense in order to win a championship. They have to just reach mediocre levels. Bad levels. Not worse than the league bad, just bad. That's all, so the jump is not that high. So I trust Pete Carroll to make the adjustments. And two, like I just said, the bar to clear in order to really improve yourself to turn things around isn't high. One or two stops a game on defense. Russell Wilson... Don't throw the ball maybe in double coverage or triple coverage. Maybe just take it to 10 yards before you even get the first down. So it's been a few bumps on the road here these last four games for sure. But I'm still very confident. By the time the playoffs come around in a few weeks, the Seahawks will be a tough out. They'll be playing the, a lot better football than they are right now. And I still think, to me, they are the favorites to get to the Super Bowl in the NFC. So I'm curious your thoughts. You watched yesterday, Rams-Seahawks. Again, another struggle for Russell Wilson. Three turnovers, zero touchdowns. Seahawks have lost three out of the last four games. They had a stranglehold on the NFC West. Now there's a three-way tie between them, the Rams, um, and the Cardinals for first place in the NFC West. Are you concerned at all about the Seahawks? Concerned about, uh, about Russell Wilson? It has been night and day these last four games or so. Russell Wilson's production now compared to what it was the first five or six games um, of the season.
You're concerned at all about the Seahawks. Anything about Russell Wilson's struggles have you worried? We'll get your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio. Also on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show. Tweet me your thoughts. We'll read them on the air. I already see one comment on Facebook that talks about the uh, Seahawks defense. I'll read you that. It's pretty funny when you come back here. And when we come back, the game of the day, Cardinals-Bills. Back and forth, back and forth, two touchdowns within the last minute or so. A very seesaw, roller coaster, exciting game. There's one takeaway from the Bills side that I have. That if you're a Buffalo fan, if you're a Josh Allen fan, you're not going to like. I'll tell you what it is next. It is the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You got to pump it up, don't you know? Pump it up. You got to pump it up, don't you know? Pump it up. You got to pump it up, don't you know? Pump it up. We are back here on the Worldwide Sports Radio, pumping it up on a very busy Monday, right here on the Ryan Hickey Show, here through until 11 a.m. Eastern. What's not pumping up right now is Seattle. Seahawks struggling, dropped their third game in four tries. Their third loss in four games is a little easier to say. I'm not overly concerned in a long-term basis with their struggles. I think it's fixable. The offensive lines play a little better. The defense just get one or two stops. Like, honestly, don't have it just be a running faucet here. Just stop. Just have some leaks. Leak, leaks are fine. With the way Russell Wilson and this offense can score points. But when it's a deluge, when the defense just can't stop anybody, that's when you're in trouble. My guy Nick writes, Jamal Adams, in all caps, stinks. Now, to be fair, Nick is a Jets fan. A little, actually, I don't even know if there's animosity. They did get two, uh, two first-round picks for him. Although I'm sure the way you know the way he handled himself and got out of New York, he didn't really uh, have too many Jets fans, let's say, rooting for him in Seattle to succeed. That's for sure. Um, but interesting, Nick also writes outside of just that Jamal Adams stinks, which I can't argue with. I cannot argue with that guy. Does talk a big game, um, and then you get on the field and it's just he wants to get the sack, he wants to get the strip. That's that's really it. You know, he doesn't really want to get in there, get his nose dirty, get some get some tackles. Taco running back. He can't cover. He just gets torched week after week after week in coverage. Um, he wants to be at that thumping safety, but doesn't want to thump big guys, we'll say. But Nick also writes, so this is, this is interesting. Seattle was overrated last year, and they have been all year this year too. So I, that's an interesting thought process. Obviously, if you listen to the show, I disagree with that thought. Um, I am a, a Seattle if you want to say believer, truther, um, I like Russell Wilson a lot. He's one of the, to me, he's the second best quarterback in the NFL behind Patrick Holmes. When you have that, you know, set behind you, um, leading your, your franchise, you're in really good hands there. Um, I understand, I'm trying to think here because the, the defense is, is bad. The defense is really bad. Maybe I'm just undervaluing defense when it comes to the playoffs. Um, they did lose to the Packers last year in the playoffs, which is, Kind of head-scratching considering that the Packers aren't really great. They struggled against the Eagles in the playoffs last year as well. I still, to me, I think Russell Wilson has taken his game to the next level. Despite the struggles last two, three, four games or so, I think he'll, he'll turn it on. I still trust him when it comes to the playoffs. I trust him more than any other quarterback right now in the NFC. Um, 
And so, sure, the defense is, is playing one of the worst defenses in all the NFL right now. You have teams like the Saints who are playing great complimentary football. The Buccaneers' offensive defense really clicked yesterday. We'll get to them in quick hits, but, man, they had a coming-out party against the Panthers. Kind of got things back on the right track. Packers' defense leaves a lot to be desired, but still not as bad as Seattle's. So Seattle has, out of the contenders, the worst unit, if you will, in terms of defense. Like, by far and away, their defense is worse than any other contender in the NFC. But maybe I'm just valuing offense too much. Because, you know, it is an offensive league. you got to win with offense. Maybe I'm just undervaluing the impact and the role that uh, that defense have, especially when it comes to playoffs. I don't think they're overrated, to be honest. Um, I think they're getting enough hype, personally. Um, so I think Russell Wilson, DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, this offense is explosive. It's deadly. Um, I like Pete Carroll's head coach. I think, to me, everything Seattle's doing is not fraudulent. Um, they are getting exposed a little bit, but I do trust them to make the adjustments when it comes down to it. Like I said, when it comes to the playoffs, I think they'll be ready to go. Um, but Nick is not a believer. Thinks Seattle was overrated this year. Thinks Seattle was overrated last year. So I guess I wouldn't say he's concerned because he was ex- sort of expecting this. But one thing we cannot uh, cannot overlook, he does not like Jamal Adams. I'm sure he is watching or enjoying watching him struggle out there in Seattle as he returns to the lineup. Hasn't done much. Bill's game last week he played, didn't play well. Yesterday, I mean, he got a sack and he got a forced fumble for sure, but Seahawks defense overall. Last in a lot of categories, now what you want to see. Oh, so if you're concerned at all about the Seahawks, Facebook, World Wide Twitter Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show, also on Twitter. If you want to tweet me your comments there, right on the live stream on either Periscope or Facebook, we'll get your thoughts. Read them on the air. And we'll get your thoughts here before we get out of here in just about 90 minutes or so at 11 a.m. Eastern. I do want to get to what I just teased before, the game of the day in the NFL. A duel in the desert, if you will. Bills, Cardinals going down to the wire. Incredible game. Josh Allen, Kyler Murray go back and forth. Cardinals win 32-30. And to me, the biggest takeaway coming out of this game, obviously, look, the way the Cardinals won, incredible. Throwing up a Hail Mary, DeAndre Hopkins making the catch um, through three Bills defenders. We can make all the Bill O'Brien jokes you want. If you want to crush him today, you know what? Deservedly so. This guy gave up, um, basically gave up on DeAndre Hopkins. He didn't want to pay him. Didn't get a first-round pick back, and now look at the plays. Look at the change he's had. For Kyler Murray and this Cardinals offense, they are really rolling right now. Again, pick up a massive win over the Bills at home and find themselves in a first-place tie with the Rams and the Seahawks in the NFC West. But to me, the biggest takeaway coming out of this game was on the Buffalo side, specifically Josh Allen, and yet again, another roller coaster ride for the Bills quarterback. Threw for 284 passing yards, so a pretty good day. His completion percentage was high which is good for him. As we know, the accuracy issues um, can come back to Biden at some point, but high completion percentage, 284 yards, two touchdowns, two interceptions. And honestly, those two interceptions could have been a lot worse. So I come out of this game watching the Bills, watching the success they had in the first half, struggling in the second half. I come out of this game, honestly, not trusting, still not trusting Josh Allen. I never was really on board the Josh Allen train. I know he's one of these quarterbacks that a lot of people want to, I feel like they're, they're trying to will him to be a good quarterback. Like they, they want him to be really good. They want to say he can be trusted. They want to say he is not holding the Bills back. But I come out of this game still, still not trusting Josh Allen. And because I can't trust Josh Allen, I'm not trusting the Bills. I'm really not. This is a, this is a team and this is a league 
where you can only go as far as your quarterback can take you. And right now, I don't trust Josh Allen can take the Bills to the promised land. I don't trust Josh Allen can even take the Bills past the first-round playoff, playoff, you know, get a playoff win. Because he can't be trusted to not make mistakes. If it's not the accuracy, it's the decision-making. Yesterday, to me, the decision-making doesn't inspire confidence that he and the Bills can get it done against good teams. Like I said, he had some good moments yesterday. It wasn't all bad. It was a roller coaster ride. He had some highs. He had some lows. Again, his completion percentage was high. For a guy with accuracy issues at points, at times, throughout his career, that he's gotten, he's as improved without a doubt. But it's still an issue at some points. He completed a high percentage pass. Uh, percent, percentage. He completed a high percentage of his passes. Easy for me to say. One day I'll get it right. There are times to chime with that one. And despite a slow second half, where the Bills let the Cardinals back in the game in part because the offense couldn't really do anything outside of a cold, breezy touchdown in the second half, he did lead the Bills down to score a go-ahead touchdown drive with just 30 seconds left. Made some nice throws, led the Bills down, and that touchdown pass he threw to Stephon Diggs that put them ahead, we thought, won them the game with just, you know, just about 30 seconds left. That was a gorgeous throw. Taking nothing away from Josh Allen. He put that only where Stephon Diggs could catch it, put it in the perfect spot right as Diggs was coming out of his route in the end zone. A beautiful pass 30 yards down the field. Gorgeous. He shows you that he has the potential to be a really good quarterback in him. But I still come out of this game concerned about his decision-making. Like I said, two interceptions. And honestly, he's lucky there weren't more. Patrick Peterson had at least one, maybe even two, opportunities to get more interceptions. There's one where he threw right to Patrick Peterson. You know what they say about defensive backs. There's a reason they're not wide receivers. So Peterson did get one. He did get a pick. But there was one, if not two more opportunities where he could have got a little, uh, a few more interceptions. It made Josh Allen's sideline a lot worse. And now this is starting to become a pattern for Allen when you look at the totality of his 2020 season so far. When he plays against good teams, he struggles to elevate his play. The Titans, two touchdowns, two interceptions, 77.6 QB rating. They got blown out in that game against Tennessee when the Titans were coming off a two-week break, a two-week COVID break, where they weren't even allowed to facility, uh, allowed into facility. Well, I think it was two days before the game. But then they played a Tuesday night game after the Steelers game had to get moved. And a bunch of Titans had a, a massive outbreak. The Titans come in there, smoke the Bills. Against the Chiefs, he threw for two touchdowns and had an interception. That game was ugly. I know it was played in the winds. I know there's some rain coming down there in Buffalo. But he didn't look good at all. 73.4 QB rating. Against the Patriots, last week, one interception, no touchdowns, 65 QB rating. Then again, yesterday against the Cardinals, two touchdowns, two interceptions, 70.4 QB rating. He's starting to come back down to earth. After what was a hot start, his first four games of the year. When, now you look back, you know, the Dolphins was a nice win back in week two. The Raiders was a nice win. The Rams was a nice win. The first four games, when Josh Allen was in MVP talks, when people were throwing bouquets Allen's way, when people were trying to proclaim him basically to make this massive jump from year two to year three, forget the mistakes, forget the accuracy issues. This guy is a real, the real deal quarterback. First four games, he had 12 touchdowns, one interception, a 124 QB rating. Again, he could do no wrong. He was great. And now as you see that Dolphins defense is one of the best in the NFL, that win looks more impressive. He scored 31 points in Miami. 
That Rams game, when he made the nice company, they got to a big lead. They scored, I believe it was 35 points. They played well. They got a big win over the Rams. That's an impressive win, but that was in that grouping of the first four games. The next four games, four touchdowns, four interceptions, 76.6 QB rating. So he goes from 12 touchdowns to one interception to four touchdowns to four interceptions. The last four games. The ups and downs can't have me trust Josh Allen in a big spot. I'm sorry. He's one of those players I have to see it to believe it. I'm not going to blindly trust Josh Allen to win this division for the Bills, to win a playoff game, to be a legitimate contender in the AFC. I can't. I'm sorry. Because yet again, against a good team, Allen shows you the roller coaster ride that he is. And guess what? Good teams capitalize on mistakes made by the quarterback. So he'll flash you some brilliance like he did yesterday. I'm not taking anything away from that Stephon Diggs touchdown pass. It was gorgeous, and the timing, the pressure was incredible. But he makes some bad decisions that cause his team that kept the Cardinals in the game. He throws one interception to Patrick Peterson, three plays there, boom, the Cardinals score. Right back in the game. It was a 23-9 game. Bills had control of the Cardinals in the second half. And a few Josh Allen mistakes. The offense sputters, and next thing you know, Arizona's back in the game. They take the lead eventually. So, yeah, the Bills are 7-3 and three right now. A game up on the Dolphins in the AFC East. Should, should, in theory, because of the roster the way it is, hold on and win that division. But I'm not, I'm honestly not a believer in the Bills. I'm really not. Until Josh Allen can become more consistent, he plays well in multiple big games, too. That, that's another thing. He can play. He showed you he can play well against a good team. I'm not going to take a lot of stock in that Seahawks win yesterday, uh, last week because, as we know, the Seahawks can make me look good at quarterback. But until Josh Allen can play more consistent, be the reason why his team is winning, and that put the team in some bad situations against good teams, that's when I'll buy into the Bills. So the Bills are 7-3. and three. I'm honestly not buying into the Bills as a legit contender in the AFC. I'm not buying into Josh Allen. I can't trust him. I honestly can't. So I know, you know, especially coming after, after last week's game against the Seahawks, you know, overthrowing uh, 400 yards passing, three touchdowns, another rushing touchdown. He played well. The numbers were inflated. People in media are trying to kind of like almost will, it feels, Josh Allen to be this really good quarterback to be this consistent guy that you can buy into, that you can believe in, that you can get behind and say, you know what? The Bills are legitimate. And I'm sorry, I just can't do it. I can't do it. Because he has shown time and time again he can't be trusted. The roller coaster ride, the highs are high, but the lows are too low for a guy with that talent, for a team with the Bills and the talent that they have all uh, across the entire roster. Josh Allen, 100%, is holding this team back. He can be the reason why they, he can easily elevate this team, get them to a, a better level. But right now, he's not reaching that potential consistently. Consistently is a key word. Flashes, yes. Drives, yes. Throughout the entire game? Throughout the entire season? The answer is no. So I'm curious your thoughts. Like I said, the Bills are first place in the AFC East. They're 7-3. and three. Josh Allen did lead the Bills down a, to a touchdown drive against the Cardinals with just, I believe, was exactly 32 seconds left. He wasn't the reason why, you know, he wasn't on defense to blow the game for the Cardinals, uh, for the Bills, excuse me. But I'm curious your thoughts. Are you a believer in Buffalo? Are you a believer in Josh Allen? As you can see, I'm not.
I'm skeptical. I got to see it to believe it is my sort of thing with Josh Allen specifically. But I'm curious your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio. WWSRN underscore radio on Twitter. Worldwide Sports Network on Facebook. Also on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show. So get your thoughts. I'm very curious to hear if you're a believer in the Bills or not. Seven and three again, first place. But I just I can't trust Josh Allen, and because of that, I can't trust the Bills. So we'll go from the AFC East to the NFC least. I got to give the Giants a lot of credit, and I'll do that when we come back. It is the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills. Can you trust them? Can you believe in them? Seven and three, first place in the AFC East. I'm still not a believer. To me, that was the biggest takeaway, at least I had yesterday coming out of that Bills-Cardinals game. An incredible ending. I know Kyler Murray made that incredible pass to DeAndre Hopkins. Cardinals are rolling right now. But watching that game, I just couldn't buy into the Bills. I couldn't have faith in the Bills because I don't trust Josh Allen. I don't. So I'm curious your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio. Go to me directly. Add Ryan Hickey Show. You believe her in the Bills? Are you believe her in Josh Allen? Kind of the flip side, right? I don't believe in the C. I don't believe in the Bills because I don't trust Josh Allen. I'm still believing in the Seahawks because I really do trust Russell Wilson. They lose again their third game, or lose their, their, for the third time in four games, I should say. Excuse me. They lose to the Rams, 23-16, a three-way tie in the NFC uh, NFC West Cardinals. Rams and Seahawks but despite the struggles I still have a lot of faith in the Seahawks to figure out because there's small adjustments needed not a lot not earth-shattering changes minor changes that I think will really help the Seahawks going forward and when you have a guy like Russell Wilson I still am a big believer in the Seahawks and I know Nick Wright wrote in on Facebook before he believes the Seahawks are overrated last year he believes the Seahawks are again overrated this year so he's not a believer he's not kind of on the bandwagon um I still am. I'm not concerned. Again, there's some warning signs there. But I trust the Seahawks in making enough adjustments necessary in order to kind of bounce back, get the ship righted, if you will, um, and still be a massive playoff threat. And if you're asking me right now, as we're sitting here on November 16th, I still, I think, would pick the Seahawks to go to the Super Bowl. So I'm not terribly concerned, despite the fact that, again, their defense has been just horrendous, and Russell Wilson is turning the ball over at an alarming rate. So any Seahawks thoughts, any Seahawks concern, Worldwide Sports Network on Facebook, WWSRN underscore radio on Twitter. Add Ryan Hickey Show also on Twitter. And again, we'll get your Josh Allen and your Bills thoughts as well. That's what we've hit on so far the first 43 minutes of the show. Still a lot to get to. Quick hits. You know, we always kind of talk about how quarterbacks make the, the team around them better. And that's always Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, any great quarterback you list. There's always about how they made the players around them better. They elevated marginal players to make them unguardable, to make them great players in their offense. There was a great example yesterday in the Cardinals-Bills game, both sides, of wide receivers making their quarterback better, a little inverse of that. I'll dive into that. We'll talk about a little Ravens in that slop-pouring 
downpour storm last night out there in Foxborough. Um, as the Ravens lose again, Patriots get a much-needed win. They're four and five in the season. We'll discuss the Patriots. We'll discuss the Ravens. A few other games in quick hits and a 10:40. We'll preview tonight's Monday night game, Vikings Bears. There's a new wrinkle from the Bears on the offensive side. I want to. I'll tell you what it is, and why I think it's a massive litmus test here for Matt Nagy and, and the outcome. Maybe could possibly have an uh, have a factor in Matt Nagy's employment when it comes to the end of the season. We'll tell you what it is. Um, and what to look out for as the Bears take on the Vikings on Monday Night Football later tonight. But I do want to talk about the NFC East here. Um, so I'll give the Giants a lot of credit and at least admit where I was wrong here. Giants defeat the Eagles 27-17 to yesterday at the Meadowlands. Go to 3-7 and on the year. And this might be the only time we will ever say a 3-7 and team is back in the playoff hunt. But they are back in the playoff hunt. They are back in the NFC East picture. Now, I'll be honest. Before I, w- I give Joe Judge, uh, Joe Judge and the Giants credit here, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even call myself a hater because there's, the Giants have given you really no reason to believe. But I know, especially this week, Giants fans on the on the radio, there was, there was talk about this is a big game for the Giants. The Eagles have owned the Giants late. The last time they beat the Eagles back in 2016, the Eagles have owned this rivalry. The Eagles still have a better team. And when you're sitting there at the Giants for 2-7, and seven, only wins are against Washington. You, know, you kind of roll your eyes, and this is a big game. They can get themselves back in the division race. So that was the talk leading up to the week, at least here in New York, um, getting the game hyped up. And I'll, you know, I'll be honest, I rolled my eyes, kind of laughed at the notion. Giants stink. I know the Eagles are bad. But I just I had this faith in the Eagles because of Carson Wentz, because they had this playoff experience before. They've kind of been here last year where they kind of slogged through the regular season, got a win, got it done in the end, and had a home playoff game. I thought the Eagles would, were one of those teams that they'll get into gear. Giants game, this is one of those games that they'll handle. They'll reassert themselves as leaders of the NFC East and just go, go on from there. Maybe not beat some good teams, but they will beat teams like the Giants in order to just keep a stranglehold on the division. You know, I was wrong. Eagles are vulnerable, and I want to give Joe Judge and the Giants a lot of credit here because they've been playing... Tough, hard-nosed, physical football all season long. And despite, again, the record 3-7, and seven, right? Nothing to go crazy about. Any other year in any other division, the season's already written off. We're already talking about draft picks. And we're already talking about next year. But they've played themselves right into this NFC East race. Now, again, it's a pride because the division's so bad. But to the Giants, give them credit. Despite the record... They still have played really hard, and they are playing every opponent tough. They're playing every opponent tough. They're pushing them. No matter the, the talent gap, they are playing hard. Five of their seven losses on the season have been by one possession or less. They have pushed teams like the Rams in, the Rams in Los Angeles. They limited that offense. They had some trouble, you know, Giants offensively. They pushed the Rams, lost by eight. Buccaneers, they were a two-point conversion away from tying that game and sending it to overtime on Monday Night Football a few weeks ago. So outside of that 49ers game, which honestly is starting to look more and more like an anomaly when they were just blown out of the water by Nick Mullins and that 49ers offense, this team is tough. This team plays really hard. They don't beat themselves too much. And you know what? They're starting, starting to. Get some buy-in for me, at least, that they can, you know, maybe make a run for this division. 
heading to this year, heading into, you know, even seeing how the season plays out, I thought the only competition for the Eagles was going to be the Cowboys. I thought the Cowboys flat out were going to win this division. Uh, this was finally the year that Mike McCarthy coming in here, no Jason Garrett, this offense, he drafts C.D. Lamb in the first round. There's just too much talent on offense. And now you at least have an offensive-minded head coach who's not as, as conservative as Jason Garrett, who maybe will challenge the players, have a new voice in the locker room. That maybe that change enough will be enough to kind of wake the Cowboys up from this malaise they've been in. Have the sum equal, the, or have the sum of the parts equal the whole, and finally get going in the right direction. Couldn't be more wrong. Right? The offense was playing well at some points during the season. Dak gets hurt. They're 1-3 with Dak as a starter anyway before he got hurt. The defense was historically bad, and the Cowboys season has been a year from hell. They're dead and gone. So at least now with the Cowboys out, I thought, all right, the Eagles will cruise the division. A nice one they had, the Eagles did over the Giants a few weeks ago on Thursday night. To me, I thought clinched the division. I really did. I thought this was one of those games where, and one of these seasons where, you know what? Because everyone is bad, because Washington stinks, because the Cowboys stink, because the, the Giants stink, and because the Eagles stink. When you have the best player in the division, especially the most important position, I thought, you know what? You'll be all right. You'll get this win. So Carson Wentz, I don't think it's a hot take or even really that arguable. Carson Wentz is the best quarterback in the NFC East. That should have been enough to win the division. That's what happened, at least how he uh, engineered that comeback against the Giants on Thursday night a few weeks ago. He made some great throws in order to win them the game. I thought that would at least be a catalyst to where they would control this division moving forward. They could be a real cont- uh, contender or not, probably not, but they would at least beat the bad teams like the Giants, like the Cowboys, like Washington to at least win the East. But I can't lie, I'm feeling less and less confident about the Eagles as the weeks go on, in part because the Giants are playing so well. They're in every game. Whether it's a good team, whether it's a bad team, they play tough, they play hard. That's a credit to Joe Judge. I rolled my eyes um, when you hear Joe Judge in training camp is making players run laps, he's making coaches run laps. It felt like, you know, one of those Bill Belichick coaches that are one of those authoritarians demanding, not even demanding respect, but thinking they have the respect of the players already just because of where they come from, which is New England. We see that arrogance that I know better than everybody else. I'm going to get it done here. I know what wins. And there's a reason why a lot of Bill Belichick assistants fail. Right? Bill Bryan had some, you know, had some success in, in Houston. You could say he didn't come close to reaching the ceiling. Made some boneheaded uh, moves as a general manager. As a head coach, he was, he was okay. Brian Flores is really starting to develop down there in Miami. But outside of that, there's been disaster after disaster after disaster that's come off the Belichick tree. While uh, Joe Judge said all the right things in the press conference, in the opening press conference. Like he, he won the opening press conference for sure. A lot of coaches do that, but I, I did like what he said. And I thought it was very inspirational. I thought it was very matter-of-fact, if you will. I thought this was going to be a culture change the Giants had. And then, again, you hear some of the wackiness that's going on in training camp, and it's like, ah, I don't really know. This feels like, you know, he's trying too hard to be Bill Belichick. And if you're trying to be someone you're not, guess what? The players will see right through it. The organization is going to see right through it. You're not going to have the trust of the guys on the field. And that's why a lot of these guys fail. But they're playing hard for Joe Judge. They're playing fundamental football. Give the Giants a lot of credit. They've been a lot better than I thought. And it's sitting here at 3-7. and seven. Again, it's wild to say. 
but they have played themselves right back in the NFC East race. Now, moving forward, looking forward, right, you get the big one over the Eagles. Both the Eagles and the Giants, because I think it's safe to say now it's a two-team race between these two for the NFC East crown. It's going to be a fight to the finish. The records could get ugly. Both have extremely, extremely hard, hard schedules remaining. Giants have to play at Seattle. They host the Cardinals at the Ravens. They play the Browns. Four very tough games. While the Eagles at the Browns, tough game, home against the Seahawks, at the Packers, home against the Saints, at the Cardinals. Look at, look at that stretch. At the Browns, Seahawks, at the Packers, Saints, at the Cardinals. A five-game stretch from hell. So the Eagles have the fifth hardest schedule remaining in the NFL, the Giants at eighth. So both are going to have a tough time going forward here. Trying to string together some wins, try to get a winning streak going. The schedule really does them no favors. Giants have the Bengals and the Cowboys remaining. Two, you would think, gimme wins. Eagles still have the Cowboys and Washington left. Those should be two gimme wins. But the rest is, is brutal. So as you sit here now, at least on November 16th, I'm still, I still think the Eagles will win the division. I think the playoff experience, I think the experience at quarterback, I think the experience with, with Doug Peterson, the head coach, I think the experience of being here last year, kind of going through the same exact situation where injuries have ravaged the team, you're going against a tough schedule, a pretty bad record is going to win this division. I trust the Eagles' experience to get it done in the end. I give the Giants a lot of credit because I didn't think anyone was going to push the Eagles once the Cowboys fell flat early on in the year. And the Giants have been that team. They showed a lot of promise, a lot of fight. And I think for Giants fans, the best news so far coming out of the season is that you hope to and you can point to kind of what the Dolphins went through last year. Right, where this is, the record wasn't close to, you know, anywhere respectable, um, anywhere where you feel good about. And remember, halfway through the year, we thought the Dolphins could be maybe the worst team in the history of football. They were 0-7, and the historical numbers they were putting up for how bad they were on offensive defense. The Dolphins had a chance, midway through the year, to be the worst team in NFL history. Look at the turnaround. That team played hard. They played smart football. They won, you know, they won five games at the end of the year. They played tough. They beat the Patriots the last game of the year that, you know, maybe helped send uh, and helped send Tom Brady packing early from New England. They played hard. I think that's what the Giants can look at. That's the blueprint they should try to aim for. And so far, there are signs that show you know what maybe they could be the Miami of the North. Maybe they could be the Miami of the NFC. Because when you're playing really hard. When you're fighting for your coach, when you're fighting for your guys, when you're not getting down, you're pushing teams that are a lot better than you to the very end. That translates really well going forward. So I give Joe Judge a lot of credit so far. He has taken this Giants franchise that, let's be honest, the Giants have been a model franchise, right? The Maras, the Tishes, they've had stable ownership. They do it the giant way. They are one of these teams that you look at and say so they do it the right way. The Giants have class. When we look at the Jets, obviously they do everything the, the, the wrong way. But the last five or so years, really since Tom Coughlin left, have been a disaster. The Giants haven't done anything right. 
PR-wise, they've been a nightmare. Head coach-wise, they've been a nightmare. General manager-wise, we'll see about Dave Gettleman. But they've, they've had issues with their GM as well. The giant way has gone the last five years or so. Joe Judge, personality-wise, how he's coaching, has the potential to get the Giants back on the right track. He's a culture setter. And so far, the team is buying in. And there, there is progress there that, that points to, for the Giants, that you can be proud of and you can point to, hey, you know what? We are building something here. Something, you know, we can latch on to going forward. And have some hope for the future. So give a lot of credit to the Giants, a lot of credit to Joe Judge so far. They beat the Eagles. Again, 3-7 and seven back in the playoff race. I still believe the Eagles, in the end, will win this division. But at least want to give the Giants, I think, their just dukes. I personally have kind of rolled my eyes at the Giants of late. Not a Giant hater. But just, you know, kind of realizing the last five years have not been Giants football. I feel like their fans kind of look at the Giants, oh, the model franchise, we know what to do. It hasn't been that way in five years. But credit to Joe Judge, he is getting them back on that path. He is. So, any, any thoughts on the NFC East? Worldwide Sports Network on Facebook, WWSRN underscore radio. Alex Young writes in on Facebook, As a Giants fan, I love what Joe Judge is doing. He is definitely the guy for the future. He also writes in, The Giants did steal defensive coordinator Patrick Graham for Miami, uh, from Miami for a reason. It's a good point. But if you're a Giants fan, I think for the first time, and again, in about five years or so, you can point to the future and see we have a bright future. 2016, they went 11-5, and right? It kind of, it didn't feel legitimate. It felt almost Packers 13-3 and fraudulent last year. The offense was nowhere near what it should have been. The defense was out of this world. They didn't score 30 points, I believe it was once all year in 2016. Packers and Aaron Rodgers tore them up in the playoffs. And then, as we know from there, the team just went into the tank. This feels real for the Giants for the first time in a long time. So Giants fans, I think you have, have a good reason to point to going forward. I think you have a good reason to be excited about the direction of the franchise. And that's in part because of the way Joe Judge has taken a hold of this team so far and really having them play hard and playing them well. So any Giants thoughts again, we have Facebook, World of Twitter Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio. Also on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show. When we come back, we'll talk about the best of the worst. Two Big Ten disasters. Penn State and Michigan, a combined 1-7 and seven on the season. Which program is in worse shape? I'll let you know my thoughts on the Ryan Hickey Show returns right here on the World of Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Our number two of the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. As always, coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios with its great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners, check out Big Italy Pizzeria in person in Medford, Joe's Pizzeria in Bayshore, online, wherever you are, BigItalyPizza.com. Are you concerned about the Seahawks as they drop their third game out of four? They lose to the Rams 23-16. Russell Wilson, three more turnovers. Looked like a lock for the MVP. Looked like he could put up historical numbers to now. 
To me, he's trying too hard. That's the biggest issue with him. And that also comes because the defense is so bad. I'm not too concerned about the Seahawks. I think they'll figure it out. Small adjustments are needed. Defense has to get one or two more stops. Rush just stops trying to win the game with every single throw. They'll be okay. On the flip side, after watching that duel in the desert yesterday, I'm not trusting Josh Allen, and thus I'm not trusting the Bills. I know he had a nice drive late in the game to put the, give them a go-ahead score with 30 seconds left. Two more interceptions. Could have had a few more interceptions if they weren't dropped. The decision-making decision still has me worried and concerned. When you're going against good teams, there's no doubt the Bills can beat the bad teams, right? There's no doubt. The question for Josh Allen and his team is, can he elevate his play when you're playing good teams to be the reason why they win? I'm not buying it, uh, to Josh Allen. I'm not trusting Josh Allen. So that's what I took away from that Bills-Cardinals game. If I can't trust Josh Allen, I can't trust the Bills. At least for the Giants. Give them a lot of credit. 3-7. and Record-wise, not what you want. But they are playing really hard. Playing some passion football for Joe Judge right there. And it's it's a good sign. I think they're, they're out, or at least they're, um, their goal should be to mimic what the Dolphins are doing. I think that, from where the Giants were, you bring in Joe Judge, a culture setter, if you will, a culture changer. Try to take this program of the Giants, or this organization of the Giants, I should say, um, that's been in chaos the last five years. Let's call for what it is. Try to bring them back to the old Giants way. So far, I think Joe Judge, if you're a Giants fan, you can feel confident that he is the coach to do that. He's been coaching really well. The players have been playing really hard for him. It's a good sign to see. And they get a nice one over the Eagles yesterday. Back at 3-7. and seven. Back in the NFC East race. Back in the playoff race. <laughs> so weird. You see a three-way tie in the NFC West with three teams at 6-3. and three, And here you are at the Giants at 3-7 and seven, thinking this, is, this, this could be a team in the playoffs. The Seahawks, the Cardinals, the Rams all could be in the playoffs. And in that same playoff field, you could have the New York Giants. That's, that's the way the NFC East shakes out. They are definitely back in. I think the Eagles will, will though, take home the crown. Um, this year, but the Giants have earned themselves to be back in the discussion. They played really hard. Um, a credit to them. So, any thoughts so far? We'll be covering the first hour. Worldwide Sports Network on Facebook, WWSRN underscore radio on Twitter, or on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show. Comment on the live stream on Periscope, comment on the live stream on Facebook. Tweet me your thoughts. We'll get them on the air before we get out of here at 11 a.m. Eastern. I do want to get some college football. Not a lot on the slate. Right, a lot of cancellations, five games that had top 25 teams playing. Um, games were canceled because of COVID outbreaks last week. So it was, a, it was a lighter slate than normal. Not too many big games. I don't think there's any games um, that had ranked team going against ranked team. But there was some storylines. There was some intrigue. And for the Big Ten, it got worse and worse and worse for two uh, of story uh, two storied programs in the Big Ten, we should say. Penn State Nittany Lions ranked eighth in the AP poll coming into the season. A team that people, including myself, thought, you know what, they have an outside shot here. They 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 have the best shot of anyone to push Ohio State and to make the playoff out of the Big Ten if it's not gonna be the Buckeyes. I thought Penn State by far and away had the best shot. Well, that's been gone for a while. And it just gets worse for them as they fall to Nebraska, a previously previous winless team. Previously winless team. I can't talk. To, I apologize. I don't know what it is. I cannot talk today. 
but Penn State loses to a previously winless team in Nebraska. They fall 20, uh, 30-23, 0-4 now in the Big Ten. The only winless team in the Big Ten is my alma mater, Penn State. Good news is, if you want to look at someone else being bad, if you want to kind of skirt the blame or, or pass the blame off to somebody else, you don't have to look too far. Because Michigan, on a national stage, right there with the 7:30 ABC game, playing a Wisconsin team that hasn't played since week one. They've had a three-week break because of a massive COVID outbreak. They got their freshman sensation quarterback, Graham Mertz, back. Um, but I thought at least, because you haven't been able to really practice that often, uh, a quarter of your team has been in, in quarantine because of a big outbreak. You had coaches, you had players um, come down with the virus, unfortunately. This was a spot where I thought, you know what, Michigan on a big stage can like get the season back. Kind of get Jim Harbaugh back off the hot seat if, he, if you think he's on the hot seat. Kind of get Michigan, get the ship righted, and kind of just ease some pressure off the Wolverines program for at least a few weeks. Against a nationally ranked team against Wisconsin, like I said, on ABC, everyone was watching. And instead, the total opposite happens. They get blown out, embarrassed at their, on their home field. They lose 49-11. to 49 to 11 to a Wisconsin team that again hasn't played since the first week of the season. What was that October 23rd? They played on a Friday night. And they come out there and just embarrass the Wolverines. Three losses in a row now for Michigan. So both teams, Penn State and Michigan, have struggled this year, to say the least, right? One in seven combined record. No one's doing anything good there. But it has been for different reasons. So I want to ask you this question. Which program is in a worse spot moving forward? Obviously, this year, the season's over. Both stink. I guess, technically, they can make a bowl game because there's no... You don't have to have six wins like normal to reach a bowl. There's really no bowl requirement, so it's whoever is going to have you um, will take you sort of thing. But we're talking about moving forward, right? Next year, the year after that, the year after that, the program health. Because both are expected to compete for championships every single year. Which is in a worse spot moving forward? To me, the answer is still Michigan. For a few reasons. And really, ultimately, because the problems Michigan is having this year with Jim Harbaugh, they've been the same problems they've had the past few years. So, for example, the quarterback play this year has left a lot to be desired. Joe Milton burst on the scene against Minnesota in a game that now we see Minnesota vastly overrated. They were a top 20 team, uh, top 25 team coming into the year. They're at home playing a Michigan game on national television. The running game looked really good. Joe Milton looked in control. Now, I'll be honest, I was hand up. I was wrong. We sat here Monday after the opening weekend of the Big Ten. And I sat here and said, you know what? For the first time in a long time, Michigan's offense looked fun. It looked explosive. It looked dangerous. It looked exciting. Michigan's offense for a very long time was vanilla. It was boring. It was bland. The way they're running the ball, playing to their strengths, I thought, you know what? Josh Gattis calling the plays, Joe Milton a quarterback. Maybe this is the year Michigan finally puts it all together and can have a competent, exciting, high-scoring offense. Well, silly me, that lasted all by one week. They lose at home the next week to Michigan State, followed that up with a blowout loss to Indiana, and they fouled that up with even a worse loss to Wisconsin. In all three games, the offense has been horrible, bad. Joe, Joe Milton, his first two pass attempts on Saturday against the Wisconsin Badgers, 
both intercepted. 0 for 2 with two interceptions to start the game. Not what you want to see. But it's not just Joe Milton. Since Jim Harbaugh got there in 2015, he's had quarterbacks like Jake Rudock, Wilton Spate, Brandon Peters, Shea Patterson, all-star games for him during his tenure in Michigan. Neither, neither, none of them have been a game-changer the way Colin Kaepernick was in San Francisco when Jim Harbaugh was there as a head coach, when he led the, led the 49ers to the Super Bowl. Neither have even showed any sort of progress or potential that you would think a former quarterback, a former NFL quarterback, a guy who's supposed to ex- whose expertise is supposed to be getting the best out of quarterbacks, be a quarterback whisperer, if you will, attract great quarterbacks to Ann Arbor. He's done none of that in Jim Harbaugh. None. E- each year, it's someone different. Again, Rudolph, Wilton Spade, Brandon Peters, Shea Patterson, Joe Milton. Now it's five quarterbacks in five years. All different skill sets. And, all, and none of them have been able to figure out how to run this offense efficiently. And you know what? When the sample size is that big, as we're going to year number six now for Jim Harbaugh, he's got to take some blame. A lot of it now falls on his shoulders. You can't blame the play. You can't claim that you don't have the right quarterback in the system. Because all six of the, or all, all five of those quarterbacks I just listed, excuse me, all have different traits, all have different strengths. So it's not like he's just working with one quarterback and he, he needs someone else. He's had all different prototypes under center for Michigan, and they all have failed in one way or another. Shea Patterson was supposed to be the savior for Michigan. I'll never forget him going to Ole Miss his first year at Ole Miss, lights up the world, throwing the ball all over the yard. Gets a waiver to play immediately, which is a huge deal for Michigan. And he's there for two years, and the first year in 2018, Michigan is on that revenge tour. You know, they lose to Notre Dame, then they rattle off, was it, 10 straight victories before they got embarrassed by Ohio State in the final game, in which they were favored in the horseshoe. And it's a, I don't want to say struggling Ohio State team, but for their standards, with Dwayne Haskins as a quarterback, not a great year for Ohio State. But the offense wasn't the reason why they're winning games. It was the defense first. And Shea Passman just do enough or just not get in the way. They were winning games because of the high-flying offense. And Jim Harbaugh's expertise was supposed to be an offense, was supposed to be putting these quarterbacks in positions to succeed, have them be the reason why they're winning. So the quarterback play throughout Jim Harbaugh's entire tenure has left a lot to be desired. How about the defense, too? Because really, and now going on year six, it felt like the defense has never been up to snuff. Don Brown, as the defensive coordinator, is a great defensive mind. He is creative. He knows how to put the he knows how to put opposing offenses, confuse them, put them in bad positions. But I feel like for the most part, every single year we're looking at this Michigan defense, we're not blown away, we're not intimidated, we're not impressed because they don't feel tough enough to win games against tough teams like Ohio State, like Wisconsin. For example, Wisconsin on Saturday night rushed for 341 yards. They ran the ball at will on Michigan. They weren't tough enough. They got punched in the mouth, and they couldn't punch back. And it's not the first time that Wisconsin's run all over Michigan. They've made it almost a yearly routine now 
where Wisconsin will punch Michigan into, in the face, pound them into the ground, and the Wolverines can't respond. So year after year after year, they've been, they haven't been tough enough to stop the run, and they haven't been fast enough to stop the pass. Ohio State has had their way with Michigan the last few years. Again, 2018 was the best example. Because 2018, everything was going in Michigan's favor. Their defense was playing like one of the best defenses in the country. They were forcing a ton of turnovers. They were getting after the quarterback. They were confident. They were cocky. Teams were intimidated playing that Michigan defense. Flip side, Ohio State with Dwayne Haskins, they got blown out. I think that year was Purdue. They got blown out by Purdue. The defense, the defense for Ohio State stunk. Flat out was, wasn't good. Ohio State played so many close games in 2018 against bad teams. It was one of those years, despite the fact that I think they got 10 or 11 wins, it was nowhere close to what Urban Meyer should have had out of Ohio State or, or the standards he used to upholding. So Michigan went into that game in 2018 as the favorite in the horseshoe. And that defense, that intimidating, high-flying, confident, cocky defense that forced turnovers, that suffocated the pass, that suffocated the run, allowed 62 points. 62 points to Ohio State. They weren't fast enough. Ohio State saw it. They put the receivers in space. Michigan couldn't catch up. They were running from behind all game long. So they're not tough enough to beat teams like Wisconsin. They're not fast enough to keep up with teams like Ohio State. It's been a hallmark for Jim Harbaugh's tenure at Michigan. So a lot of this, the reason why you look at Penn State 0-4, embarrassing themselves week after week after week, we're going to tell you in a second. You look at Michigan 1-3 as the losses continue to increase by point deficit each week. A lot of the struggles, the reason why Michigan, to me, is more concerning is because a lot of the struggles are starting to fall on the head coach. Now, to Jim Harbaugh's credit, after the game on, uh, against Wisconsin, he admitted that. This is Jim Harbaugh after the game basically saying the buck starts with him. Not a good place as a football team right now, and that, you know, that, that falls on me. And uh, going to get after uh, really going back to, going back to basics and, and, and everything we do and look at everything that we're doing and, and – uh, you know, everybody, everybody's got to, everybody's got to do better. And as I said, you know, I'm at the front of the line in accountability. Front of the line in accountability, everyone's got to do better. Not a good place at a, as a football team. You do not want to be hearing that if you're a Michigan fan with year number six with Jim Harbaugh. So look, that's why to me, you hear the same thing week after week after week. If you're Michigan, Penn State to me is a different story. I'm not making any excuses because this year has been equally as bad, probably even more embarrassing, I'll say, because the way they've lost games, just how flat out bad they've looked. But at least Penn State has some excuse, if you will. Opt-outs and injuries have had a major effect on this team. Running back, no Journey Brown, potential, potential first-round pick he was projected to be coming to this year, has an unfortunate heart issue, had to medically retire from the game. Noah Kane, Penn State's number two running back, injured on the first drive of the season out for the year. So already, one drive into the 2020 season, you are now using or relying on your third string running back, who's a true sophomore, to handle the bulk of the carries, and behind him is two true freshmen. One sophomore, two true freshmen are the three guys running the ball a lot for Penn State. 
On defense, you lose a top five pick in Micah Parsons, opts out for the draft. Obviously, that's a massive loss in the middle of your defense. He was the heart and soul of that team. That's a big loss, and now you're playing younger linebackers that, again, you weren't expecting to have them play as many snaps and be relied upon as heavily as they are being this year. So then because you have young players playing more than ever, there are a lot of growing pains this year. So that's been, that's been, to me, one of the issues for Penn State. Now, one issue that is very concerning that I think it can't be accumulated or attributed, I should say, to having a young player play too much is that it's quarterback. Because Sean Clifford has totally regressed. He's been brutal, flat-out brutal this year for Penn State. Started last year, you know, first time uh, as a starter. Played better than I expected, and I thought he was going to carry that into this year, be even better. Six interceptions so far this season, threw just seven last year. Fumbling the ball, and flat out, he looks lost. He looks lost under center, doesn't really know what he's looking for, not, uh, not reading the field correctly, running the ball way too much. And now, unfortunate for the offense, because he, doesn't, he can't, read the ball, uh, can't read the field, you're relying on Sean Clifford and his legs to run more than ever, which is not a recipe for success. That's not how you want to win games. He's not a mobile quarterback. And now when you're basically having him the biggest solution or the best offensive, um, the best way to get, get the ball moving offense, I should say, excuse me, is having Sean Clifford run, you're in trouble. So both schools have some major, major issues, Penn State and Michigan. But like I said, they're different issues. No excuses because Penn State's quarterback play has been brutal, and that's the reason, part of the reason why they're 0-4. But you can attribute some of their struggles to opt-outs and injuries. Michigan, it is the same old story. It is the same old story at quarterback with, def- with the defense. That's why, at least to me, Penn State's issues are more fixable than Michigan's. I put this poll out on Twitter, at Ryan underscore Hickey number three, in my personal Twitter account. Saturday night, as Michigan was in the midst of getting blown out on national TV. Which program's in worse shape, Michigan or Penn State? 64% said Michigan. I'm honestly a little shocked it's that stark of a difference, but I would agree. And I would agree because of the reasons I just laid out. Michigan's the same old story year after year after year. Pandemic or no pandemic, the quarterback play has left a lot to be desired. As a guy who, as a former quarterback himself, that's not what you, you can't have that. I'm sorry. So for Penn State, at least to me, I think their issues are more fixable. Michigan, you might need a new voice as a, as a leader. I don't think Michigan will fire Jim Harbaugh. I really don't. I think if that's going to end, it's going to be Jim Harbaugh leaving to go to the NFL, which I think, honestly, is becoming more and more likely as the season continues. But it might be a blessing in disguise if, if Jim Harbaugh decides to take one for the team here and look for employment elsewhere. Because the same issues continue to plague Michigan, and I don't see them changing unless the voice, the leader itself changes. So I'm curious your thoughts. I give you my spiel. I think Michigan, despite the fact that both teams stink, 1-7, Penn State the only winless team in the Big Ten. I think Penn State's problems are a little bit better, or a little bit more fixable, I should say, than Michigan's. It's more concerning. Michigan, despite the fact they have a win, the same issues keep on popping up year after year after year. And that is, that's the biggest concern. So I'm curious your thoughts. Where do you weigh in? 
two Big Ten powerhouses struggling in 2020. Which program's in a worse spot, Michigan or Penn State? We'll get your thoughts when the Ronnie Show returns. And when we come back, quick hits. Quick hits. Two-point conversion analytics, to me, have gone too far. Jameis Winston going to get some burn as the Saints quarterback. We'll discuss that all that and a little bit more when the Ryan Hickey Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, you're... Ten twenty, as we always do every single Monday after the NFL season. Quick hits. We're going around the league, hitting on games we haven't discussed in depth so far, giving some teams some love, pointing out some questions that I have. We go around the NFL. Week number 10 edition of Quick Hits. We'll start with the Giants and Eagles game. I want to kind of revisit another, um, another issue in that game, and that is I don't understand the two-point analytic thought process. And this specifically is with Doug Peterson, because to me at least there is a point in overdoing it. I know analytics are, is kind of a hot-button issue. It's, it's a polarizing topic where some people believe analytics is, is stupid. They don't belong in the game. It's ruining the game. Other people, you know, are a slave to the numbers, if you will, rely only on analytics, um, skew on the numbers, and just whatever the numbers say we're going to do. There, is, there has to be some sort of balance, and to me at least, Doug Peterson is really, really starting to push the boundaries where it comes to going for two, just making zero sense at all. So here's the situation in case you missed it. So Doug Peterson and the Eagles are down by 11 early in the first half. They score a touchdown. All right, they're down by, what is that, 11? Five. They go for two to get, the, to get the deficit down to three, right? You're within a field goal. Okay. Down by 11, you score a touchdown. Going for two makes, it's not uncommon. Maybe depending upon where you are in the game, if it's early in the game, maybe you won't do it. But it's not like outrageous. It's not crazy. It's not outlandish. Go for two, they get it. All right, so you get it. You're down by three. Mission accomplished, right? Down by a field goal. Now a field goal ties the game. Later on in the game, Eagles score another touchdown. They are down 21-17. Down by four. Kick the extra point, you're down by three. Right? Okay, you still remain, you know, a field goal ties the game. Well, Doug Peterson, down 21-17, decides to go for two again. And I don't get how it makes sense. Like, this is where I question the analytics going for two all the time and trying to balance the numbers. I don't understand the math. Down by four, kick the extra point, you get down by three. You're within a field goal. How it makes sense to go for two? Because guess what? It didn't work. They didn't get it, and they remained down by four. So now, in the second half, you need a touchdown to take the lead. Now, the analytics... It, it, like the part that bothers me the most now I'm not anti-analytics they do have a place in the game and it does help I mean the numbers play out over a long period of time it helps make informed decisions right going for going for a fourth down what's the percentage is within four yards within five yards does it make sense to go for it here in my own territory but it's only fourth and one the percentage chance of getting a tie analytics has a place in the game for sure but what I don't understand is that when you are a slave to the numbers where you're trying to just outsmart everyone. You're almost using the analytics as a tool 
to show how smart you are compared to everyone else, that's when it backfires. That's when it has its drawbacks. Analytics has a place in the game for sure, but you also have to use your brain. It has a feel for the game. The offense for the Eagles has struggled scoring points all season long, right? It's not a hot take. They've had injuries on offensive line. They've had injuries at running back, injuries at wide receiver. They are not the Seahawks and Russell Wilson where they're going up and down the field, or they're the Chiefs with Patrick Holmes going up and down the field every single time you get the ball, and you're confident they're going to score two more touchdowns, three more touchdowns. The Eagles, you got to get whatever you can get. You can't assume you're scoring touchdowns every single drive. So now to put your team in a position where they have to score a touchdown in order to take the lead again, or get you know get back in the game, I don't get it. When a field goal would have just done do at least to tie the game. Analytics has a place, but when you try to outsmart everybody, when you try to overdo it, it backfires. And this to me is a case where it backfired. Now that decision didn't have a direct impact on the game. You know, the Giants win by 10, 27, 17. But it's it's one of those head scratching decisions where the math like, like we don't have to overdo it here. We don't have to pretend we're reinventing the game just to show everyone, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. Kick the field goal, stay down by three. Follow the book. There's a reason why the outline is there. Field goal now, all you need to tie the game is to have a touchdown. Obviously, as we know, the Eagles didn't get another touchdown rest of the game. They lose by three. Uh, they lose by ten. Trying to outsmart everybody else has its own drawbacks. The two-point analytics, to me, at least for Doug Peterson specifically, is one of those guys where I think he tries to outsmart everyone else and it's come back to bite him more than it's helped him out. Let's go to last night's Sunday Night Football game. Ravens-Patriots in a monsoon in New England. The rain just felt like it was getting harder and harder and harder as the game went on. And obviously, as we know, the Patriots win 23-17. But it's interesting because another game where the Ravens offense struggles now again. The elements have a lot to do with it. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not, I'm not pretending like the rain didn't have an impact. It absolutely did. But when you listen to what Lamar Jackson said earlier this week on the Rich Eisen show, seeing how you know opposing defenses are calling out the Ravens' plays, whether it's by formation, whether it's by hard count, whatever, whatever key the defenses are picking up upon, they are becoming more familiar with the Ravens' offense. They're knowing where the ball is going. And in doing so, the Ravens' offense has struggled this year, right? Nowhere near... The, the, potent, the potency, the explosiveness that they were last year. Lamar Jackson, by far and away, ran with the MVP this year. Anything but the case. So teams have adjusted to the Ravens in the offseason. And my question is, how have the Ravens not adjusted back? Like, that's what I guess I'm struggling to process so far and what's so befuddling watching this Ravens team. They have an incredible coaching staff. John Harbaugh, one of the best coaches in the NFL, doesn't get enough praise for what he can do and the consistency that he has that Ravens team playing year in and year out. Greg Roman as offensive coordinator, a ton of credit because both him and Harbaugh took Lamar Jackson in the first round, as we know, back in 2017. So Joe Flacco as your starter. So he had an offense built for Joe Flacco, built to uh, cater to Joe Flacco's needs, a pro-style offense, if you will, with a backup that is anything but a pro-style uh, quarterback, right? As we know, Lamar Jackson, super dynamic, can kill you with his legs. So they took that team that was struggling with Joe Flacco in the middle of 2018, inserted Lamar Jackson, was able to transform the offense within the season. This is not in the whole offseason to scout, draft players, sign for agents to, to fit the offense. This was in the middle of a season. 
change your entire dynamic of offense to fit and cater to what Lamar Jackson does. They made the playoffs. And then the following year, they just took it to overdrive, right? Run, 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 run. In doing so, having so much so much success as they did on the ground, that opened up the passing game. They're the most efficient passing offense last year in the NFL. Most efficient passing offense. You think about the Ravens, you think about running. They had the most efficient passing offense in the NFL last year in part because defenses were petrified about the run. They didn't know who was carrying the ball and where it was going. And then opened up a many passing lanes for Lamar Jackson. This year, defenses have adjusted. The running game isn't as explosive as it was. I love the J.K. Dobbins pick. He struggled to get going. Mark Ingram, Gus Edwards, it's just not as, as potent and explosive as it was last year. Now, they've had injuries, right? You know, they, they are out with uh, Ronnie Stanley out for the year. Marshall Yonda retired before the season started, so they've had their own issues. But that shouldn't be enough to stop the why the Ravens haven't been successful in offense so far. So I have a lot more questions right now than I have answers. And I just, it's just more curious of what's going on. Because even so, you never really hear drama come out of Baltimore. You never really hear Lamar Jackson. Now, I don't think it was a slight question of the coaching staff when you say that defenses are calling out their plays. But you can take it as a slight that, hey, the offense is not creative enough. Greg Groen maybe isn't doing enough to disguise what he wants to do. In doing so, it's making it easy to telegraph what you're doing in offense, and that's why defenses know what's coming. Something's going on there in Baltimore, and this is just another game where the Ravens struggle offensively. Now, again, it's in the monsoon. I understand that. But they still struggle to kind of get the ball rolling, still struggle to be their same explosive selves, and it ends in another loss for the Ravens. Now, they're 6-3. The sky's been falling. But it does, it does make you wonder what's going on there. Can Lamar, can this offense make adjustments? Because if not, they are not really a playoff threat right now. There's the Chiefs and the Steelers and everyone else in the AFC, and that gap is continuing to widen to those two teams and everyone else. The Ravens are supposed to be there. The Ravens are really supposed to be where the Steelers were. That's been anything but the case so far. Interesting to see going forward what happens coming out of Baltimore. Speaking of interesting going forward, the Saints offense could get very interesting. Now, in case you missed it, Drew Brees didn't play the second half of yesterday's game against the 49ers. We hope he's okay. It was because of rib injury. He took a massive hit early in the game, got slammed on his back. I thought maybe his head got hit. It seems like maybe there was some sort of rib injury going on. And there is now thought and speculation that Drew Brees could miss some time. Which would mean enter Jameis Winston. He threw 10 passes yesterday, completed 6 for 63 yards. I am very interested and intrigued to see how Jameis Winston looks in extended, you know, extended playing time in Sean Payne's offense. If Drew Brees is out next week, maybe he's out for the next two or three weeks if they're cautious with trying to make sure Brees is 100% healthy before returning. There's going to be a few-week tryout, if you will, for Jameis Winston, maybe to be their quarterback next year for the Saints, maybe to be someone else's quarterback next year or somewhere else. I said on this show, after week number two, after the Saints and Drew Brees looked old on Monday night against the Raiders, he wasn't, look, he wasn't throwing the ball well. He was struggling already. That Raiders defense, which, as we know now, really bad, really bad, had a lot of success in defending Drew Brees and that Saints offense all the way back in week number two on that Monday night game. I declared right on this show, the Saints cannot win a Super Bowl with Drew Brees as their quarterback, they have a better shot with Jameis Winston under center. He gives them a better chance of winning. I'm standing by that. I'm not taking it back because Drew Brees had some good, you know, some good games since. 
The question was never about for Drew Brees what he does in the regular season. What can he do in the postseason? Checking down, throwing underneath does not win you games in the postseason. He has struggled in recent years in playoff games. So that was always the question. Can he get it done in the postseason? He has in the past few years. And I'm really interested now how Jameis Winston looks. Because you know what? I said Jameis Winston, the Saints should consider, you know, playing Jameis Winston at some point this year. Now, now you get your chance. Now, Sean Payne has an opportunity. He signed Jameis Winston into a one-year deal. He bought super low on a guy with a ton of talent who just can't, you know, keep the ball from going to the other team. If we get a two- or three-week look at Jameis Winston, I'm very honestly excited to see how he looks with the Saints offense. I think he could have success. I really do. I think Sean Payton is a good enough coach to where he will not allow Jameis Winston to be put in situations where he is going to make mistakes. I really do, I really do believe that. So I'm very interested to see how this works out. Obviously, we wish good health for Drew Brees. But there is some thought and speculation on this Monday morning that Drew Brees could miss some more time. He's getting MRI in the ribs. But if he, makes, if he misses an extended period of time, I am very interested to see how Jameis looks in that Saints offense. So last week we sat here, speaking of the Saints, last Monday, a week, a week ago today, I sat here and said, that blowout, the Saints delivered to the Buccaneers, that total beatdown, Tampa Bay suffered on Sunday Night Football, losing to the Saints 38-3 in your home turf. I said, you know what? That was a one-off. A one-game stinker. They didn't bring it. Everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong for Tampa Bay. Don't read much into it. It's just one of those nights where everything went wrong. Everything benefited the Saints, and those nights happen. Well, what happened yesterday against the Panthers, a scrappy Panthers team, mind you, that's played tough, that's played hard under Matt Rule, similar to the Giants, where the wins and loss record don't reflect how tough this team is playing and how they push good teams. Last week, they went toe-to-toe with the Chiefs for four quarters in Kansas City. Yesterday, the Buccaneers reasserted themselves, got, you know, kind of righted the ship. 46 points to score in the Buccaneers, I mean, on the Panthers, 544 yards of total offense. Tom Brady dazzling, 341 yards, three touchdowns, 28-39, efficient, deadly. They got, they got going on the right track again. The defense, again, embarrassed a week ago against the Saints, held the Panthers just 178, uh, 187 total offense yards. That's it. 187 yards of total offense for the Panthers yesterday. Now, I know Teddy Bridgewater had an injury, and he missed you know, a portion of the game. It's still a very impressive to hold an entire team under 200 total yards. Buccaneers' defense is back. Buccaneers' offense is back. They showed in a big way yesterday. I'm telling you, that game against Sunday night, or last Sunday night against the Saints, excuse me, looking more and more and more like a fluke. Watch out for the Buccaneers. And finally, I want to circle back to one game we talked about earlier, the Cardinals and the Bills, right? High-flying, a lot of points scored, two young quarterbacks doing it out. It was a lot of fun to watch. We always talk about young, or I should say, we always talk about with quarterbacks, they make everyone around them better, right? A great quarterback, Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, Drew Brees, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, you can, the list goes on and on of great quarterbacks. They make their entire team, they make the entire offense around them better. They make the offensive line better. They make their running backs better. They make the wide receivers better. They make the tight ends better. Whether it's ball placement, whether it's audible, whether it's just putting the ball on them, whether it's scrambling to give the offensive line some more time, great quarterbacks make them make the team around them better. That's what makes them great. We rarely, though, do we talk about position, position players making the quarterbacks better. And that's what we had yesterday with the Cardinals-Bills game. Think about it. Both teams, Cardinals and the Bills, 
traded for a big-time wide receiver this offseason. And so far, Stephon Diggs with Buffalo, DeAndre Hopkins with the Cardinals, not only had a massive impact on their teams, they've made their young quarterbacks around them better. Stephon Diggs yesterday, 10 catches on 11 targets, so he's a vacuum, catching everything that's thrown to him, 93 yards, and obviously that massive touchdown to put the Bills ahead with just under 30 seconds to go. Josh Allen has played better this year in part because Stephon Diggs is present, or of his presence on the offense because of his talent, because he's that dog, that number one option where you throw the ball up, he's going to get it. You just put it in the radius, Stephon Diggs is coming down with it. So that confidence that Josh Allen has in Diggs, the ability that Diggs has alone, has made Josh Allen better. On the flip side, the same with DeAndre Hopkins. Hopkins, seven catches, 127 yards, and as we know, that massive touchdown on the Hail Mary from Kyler Murray that ended up winning in the game with just two seconds left. Murray's wasted no time getting his, uh, getting his, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Continuity down, if you will, getting his familiarity with Hopkins. He's thrown the ball really since game one, throwing it to him often. He loves his new toy. When you have a, a bona fide number one stud receiver, you throw the ball anywhere in their direction, they're going to come down with it. It grows the confidence for Kyler Murray. It grows the confidence for Josh Allen. So we are seeing in living proof, and we saw it play out perfectly yesterday, of two wide receivers acquired in the offseason, big moves by their teams that have bolstered the offense, made the quarterbacks, the young quarterbacks better, and made the offense better. You see their impact right away, and it's been massive for both teams. Usually it's the quarterback making the players better, or the wide receivers better, we should say. In, the, in both the Bills' case and the Cardinals' case, the wide receiver is making the quarterback better, which is why he brought that wide receiver to town in the first place. So I'm curious your thoughts. Any game in your mind in week number 10 that stands out, what was your biggest week 10 takeaway in the NFL? We'll get your thoughts on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show also on Twitter if you want to tweet me there directly. But it's your biggest takeaway from week number 10 in the NFL. And when we come back, Monday Night Football tonight, Bears-Vikings. Big game. There's one change for the Bears offense that could be a big litmus test for Matt Nagy moving forward. I'll tell you what it is when the Ranky Show returns right here on the World of Sports Radio Network. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And we are back here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, taking you to the top of the hour, just about 10 minutes or so, talking a lot of takeaways from week number 10 in the NFL, a busy week number 10 in the NFL. That does end tonight, Monday Night Football, Bears taking on the Vikings in Chicago. A uh, almost a tale of two teams going in two different two different directions right now. Excuse me, Vikings after a tough start are playing a lot better, putting starting to string together a win streak, and Dalvin Cook has totally come alive these past few games. He's been on fire, and the Bears after starting five and one are trying to avoid their fifth straight loss that would drop them to five and five on the season. Now I teased it earlier. There is one very interesting wrinkle coming to this game. That's going to change on the Bears' offense that I think could potentially have an impact on Matt Nagy's job security going forward, how the organization should view him, and fans should view him. 
Because what's going to happen tonight is for the first time this season, Matt Nagy will not be calling plays for the Chicago Bears. Instead, it'll be offensive coordinator Bill Lazor. He'll be the off- or he'll be the play call, excuse me, for Chicago tonight as they take on the Vikings. And let's just say the Bears are in need of some sort of juice, some sort of reboot so far, because up to this point, the Bears are 29th in the NFL in points per game, 19.8. 32nd, so dead last in rushing yards per game, 82.3. 31st in yards per play, 4.8. And since Nick Foles has taken over back in week four, the Bears are 31st in total offense. Only the New York Jets since week four are worse offensively than the Chicago Bears. When you're in the conversation with the New York Jets, especially this season, you know things are not going your way. You know things are in dire straits. And the fact that, honestly, the Bears are 5-4 and four right now, it's a minor miracle. Think about it. Second and last in total offense. Second and last in yards per play. Last in rushing yards per game. Fourth worst points per game in the NFL. And somehow they're 5-4 and four with a winning record. So this is really what I'm interested to see with the new play caller, with the new mind, if you will, calling the plays and offense for Chicago. Can something change for the Bears offense in a positive? Because really, there's been nothing to write home about. There's been nothing to look forward to if you're a Bears fan watching this offense come on the field. There's not much imagination at all. There's really zero big playability. Now, I know their offense line has been a total, total, total disaster. Even when everyone's healthy, it's not a good offensive line. But COVID, injuries, they've also had some issues offensive line, putting third-string tackles on the field. It's been rough at some points, for sure. But you know what's also not happening offensively for Chicago right now? That is Matt Nagy putting these players in positions to succeed. We say it all the time. I feel like I say it every week here, or maybe even every show. Putting players in positions to succeed. It sounds very easy. It sounds very obvious. But the reason why I keep repeating it, the reason I keep pointing to that as a massive key is because coaches and teams don't do it that often. They don't do it, whether they can't because of just straight-up talent or or inability coaching-wise, or they refuse to change to benefit the team. It really holds teams back, and the Bears have been an issue. Like The Bears have suffered from that this year. The Bears have been a victim of that on offense to me this year. So that's why I'm interested to see how Bill Lazor kind of attacks the Vikings and how he views this offense. Because at least to me, as an outsider, right? Obviously living here in New York, I'm not a Bears fan, I'm not in Chicago. As an outsider watching the Bears, to me, I view this Bears offense, and I view personally Matt Nagy as someone who refuses to change who he is. Now, that's not a bad thing in a, in a sense, right? You don't want someone who just, you don't know their identity, they're constantly flip-flopping. What I mean by that is you can't be hard-headed enough to where you are going to run your scheme and only your scheme, no matter who's there. If you want to have a certain style of play, but you don't have the players to do so, you have to cater your offense to the players you have. To me, watching how Matt Nagy coaches, watching this team the past few years with Bears, it feels like to me, Matt Nagy has a system. We're going to do this, this, and this. I don't care that I, have, I don't have the players to execute this. We're going to run it. And then I'm just going to fall back on the players being the excuse of, ah, the player's not good enough to run my system. I haven't seen Matt Nagy 
Try to play to Mitch Trubisky's strengths. Try to roll him out of the pocket. Have him throw on the run more often. I haven't seen him try to play to Nick Foles' strengths. To me, this is the same offense. No matter who's under center, despite the two very different styles of quarterback, with Trubisky being mobile and Nick Foles being a drop-back pocket passer, if you will, nothing changes. And the offensive line, again, I, I admit they have their issues, and that if you can't get your offensive line figured out, you're going to have a very tough time trying to move the ball. I understand that. But at some point, you've got to stop banging your head against the wall and running the same thing over and over and over again. Excuse me. I don't think David Montgomery is a bad running back. But he is a bad running back in this Bears system because in part he is asked to do things that already fail. I feel Matt Nagy is continually pounding his head against the wall. We're going to run this play. We're going to run this play. We're going to run this play. It's about the fact that the offensive line can't block it. And you're putting your running back in a position to get crushed behind the line of scrimmage. There's no imagination. There's no changing it up. There's no game planning to put your players in position to succeed. There's different ways to run the ball. Look at the Rams with Sean McVay. Look at the 49ers. The 49ers are actually a way better example. Kyle Shanahan, you talk about injuries? You talk about trying to adjust to your personnel? Look at that IR list for San Francisco. Look at the names on that list. Quarterback, running back, you had tight ends, you have wide receivers, you have great defensive players. No one has been more injury-ravaged this year than the San Francisco 49ers. And sure, they're under 500. They're four, I think their exact record is 4-6, and six if, I, if, I, if I'm correct. They're not going to make the playoffs. They're struggling, don't get me wrong. But their offense isn't in the tank when Nick Mullins runs the ball. When Jarek McKinnon is getting 20, 25 carries a game. Because you know why? Kyle Shanahan designs plays, designs schemes to fit whoever is playing that week. So if one player is better running out of the tackles, he's going to design plays to run the ball out of the tackles. If one running back is better just pounding the ball at the middle, pounding the ball at the middle, pounding the ball at the middle, guess what he's going to do? Draw plays, draw up schemes to where the middle run is open. That's what good coaching is. That's what I mean. Kyle Shannon is the best coach right now in the NFL that hasn't won a Super Bowl. And Parkers, he realizes the offense that he has. He realizes the pieces he has. Says, all right, what can I do with this guy? How can I exacerbate the strengths and minimize the weaknesses? Where I feel like when I watch Mad Nag and his Bears offenses, we're running this play. I don't care if you can't run it. You better just figure out how to do it. And now you watch the Bears more and more and more. I think it brings to light. Remember, let's go back to Monday Night Football a few weeks ago, the last time the Bears on Monday Night Football, when they played the Rams. Remember when Brian Greasy spoke when he was saying, when he was talking to Nick Foles throughout the week, and Nick Foles told him that he'll hear play calls come in knowing before the play is even run, it has no chance. Whether it's time, he won't have enough time to throw the ball deep, whether knowing his receiver won't be able to win the route, whether knowing that the running back or the offensive line won't be able to block it correctly, Nick Foles told Brian Greasy, there are plays that I'll hear in the headset as soon as they're called out, before we even line up under center, before we even run the play and stop the ball, I know they will fail. That is a direct indictment on Matt Nagy. I know he tried to clean it up. I know they tried to walk it back. Let's, I think Nick Foles knew what he was doing there. That is a direct indictment on Matt Nagy, and that's why I'm very interested to see 
how Bill Lazor calling the plays tonight for the Bears, how that goes. If they have success, if the Bears are moving the ball, if this offense looks competent, if they can get any sort of run game going, and they have success the rest of the year, I think you're going to have to start looking at Mad Nagy and be like, dude, what are you doing, man? If you can't, if you can't figure this out, which he has shown he hasn't been able to, you have to look for somewhere else for a job. Because your goal is to scheme to put the players in position to succeed. A lot easier said than done, don't get me wrong. But it doesn't even feel like Matt Nagy is trying to do that with the Bears. He's running his system by hell or high water. I'm running what I want to run. Screw the players that I have. We're doing it my way or the highway. And you know what? If Bill Lazor has success, Matt Nagy is going to hit the highway soon. So something to watch for tonight. How the Bears offense looks with a new guy, with a new man, calling plays for the Bears. That's going to do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show. I appreciate all of you who tuned in, who listened, who wrote on Facebook, who, who streamed the show. Um, hopefully you made your Monday a little bit better. That's always our goal here, to start your week off on the right note. Enjoy the game tonight. We'll be back on Thursday, of course, to lead you to get ready for week number 11 of college football, of the NFL. A lot to get into. The NBA, free agency is starting before we get out of here, one last time, congratulations again to Justin Johnson. A great, great Masters weekend for him. He wins his first career green jacket. Watching the emotion um, post-game of him talking and what it meant to him was awesome. Very cool. Congratulations to him. It was an awesome, fun, uh, fun weekend to watch some golf. So enjoy it all. Enjoy the rest of your week. Stay warm. It's going to get cold now. We'll talk to you on Thursday right here on the World Wide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network.